Diversion Audio. Hi, I'm Natalie Emmanuel. From Ramsey in Fast and Furious to Missande in Game of Thrones, I've loved playing roles of women whose resourcefulness, intelligence, and inner strength are pushed to the limit. And I've been inspired by women who withstood the phenomenal pressures of being a wartime leader. The history books too often will have us believe that the stories of leaders in times of war are stories of men, until now. In this episode, we go back to ancient Greece, a time of philosophers, spears, empires, and the movie 300. I'm proud to present War Queens, a podcast about powerful women leaders throughout the centuries and around the world. We are here because for the first time for many years, British sovereign territory has been invaded by a foreign power. We will continue to do everything possible to avoid an armed conflict. And the situation is a, a grave one. We are driven by necessity to prepare to defend what was just gained, our freedom and our very being. Our father-daughter team of Emily and John Jordan take a look at a woman whom the first great historian respected for her courage in battle and wisdom in the council tent. Hey, Natalie. Great to see you again. Thanks for having me. It's great to be back with you. So my dad and I have been fans of Game of Thrones for a really long time. And one of the characters we really liked was Arya Stark. She's really different from most of the other women because she trains with a sword and literally and figuratively transforms herself from a scared little girl into a ferocious, deadly fighter. Yes. I mean, I was a huge fan of Arya, too. She might have been like my favorite character played by Maisie Williams, the lovely Maisie Williams. Just her courage, born out of just trauma from like witnessing something awful. She realized that she had to protect herself and, you know, the world was a scary, brutal place. And, mm-hmm. yeah. and I think like that's something we can all kind of relate to. Oh, for Absolutely. sure. And I think about like, I mean, just think about being back in this time where women are constantly taken advantage of and preyed upon. And like you said, coming from this trauma out into a powerful player in not only her family, but in the political game. So, And Arya had a sword. And there were, of course, a lot of male characters who trained with swords in that show. If you were, for the most part, a man without a sword, you're kind of emasculated almost like Varys. But here's my question for you, Natalie. In a fight between Grey Worm and Arya, who would win? Ooh, that's a hard question. Um, that's a really hard question. I mean, I think... I want to say Arya because, you know, go queen. But (laughs) the slave soldiers, the enslaved soldiers were literally like bred like to be brutal killers, like from children. Like it was such a like vile and brutal existence that they had. I remember the chest cutting scene. I was like, oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, they're literally programmed to not feel pain and or like respond to pain like it's such a I don't know like it's so traumatic and awful and they have many sort of disciplines so I'm like in reality Grey Worm would probably win but 
I also think that Arya was like very, very smart and quick on her feet, and maybe she would get an upper hand just because she's skillful with a sword, but also very, very like quick, very fast, that fast. So Uh it's hard to know. Actually, I'd like to see that. (laughs) Yeah, um, that it'd be a good pub debate. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I I don't see Grey Worm like murking children (laughs) for fun, but I I think he would probably win the fight if it came to it. Yeah. God, what an awful question. (laughs) (laughs) Well, today we're going to be talking about a woman who did know how to fight. She showed courage and cunning under fire, and unlike most of our war queens, she made her mark at sea in a naval battle, rather than on land. She's different from how she's depicted in the 300 movie sequel, but in many ways, she's even more remarkable. So, Dad, why don't you launch the story of Queen Artemisia of Caria, a naval commander, war planner, and all-around badass. Of course, him. Now, movie fans might remember Artemisia as the semi-villain of the movie 300 Rise of an Empire. That was the sequel, where Artemisia is played by Eva Green. Artemisia fights on the side of King Xerxes of Persia, who's sort of the boss villain at war against the Greek cities, like Athens, Sparta, Corinth, and other places. Oh, I love a good fantasy film tie-in. So, John, set the scene for us. We're talking 480 B.C., so about roughly 300 years after Homer wrote the Iliad, definitely deep into the swords and sandals era. The main villain of the movie and the main villain of our story is King Xerxes. He's the emperor of the Persian Empire. He's a grandson of Cyrus the Great, and uh, he is a, a pretty careful planner. He's a smart guy, actually. He's nothing like the movie 300 has him in. The 300, of course, is partly fictional. And in the movie 300, Xerxes looks kind of like, at one point, sort of like if Mr. Clean went goth and then he got spray painted by Goldfinger. (laughs) It was just sort of this weird kind of comic book vibe that they've cast him as. But the reality, according to Herodotus, our primary source for this war, is that he was a, a relatively intelligent leader. He was a very careful planner. He had come from a long line of fathers and grandfathers who had led military campaigns. He didn't scream at his army and yell at them to go defeat the Spartans. He planned his military campaigns pretty well. He uh, also wasn't bald and and hairless. He had sort of this big beard that looked kind of like Phil from Duck Dynasty. So he's an intelligent ruler, unlike the movie. And unlike the movie, we don't know what Artemisia looked like, but I'm pretty sure she didn't look like Eva Green, okay, (laughs) who in the movie has two big swords that are way too big for any one person to carry. She whips them around, and she has like a bunch of soldiers who are wearing these weird orc silver masks behind them. A distinct lack of helmet on her and some of her generals. Yeah, yeah, in those movies, in fact, a lot of movies, the credited actors don't wear any helmets because you've got to be able to see them. And so in 300, she and any other starring person, they got to go helmetless. And as we know from Manduhai's story, if you go helmetless in a battle, that's not a good thing. No. So the third major character is Themistocles. He was sort of a bulldog of an admiral. He was part of a political faction that was a lot like the way Julius Caesar would be a few hundred years later. Themistocles was the admiral in charge of the Athenian fleet. He came from Athens, 
and he was a big proponent of Athens building up its navy. Now, the reason this is important is because Athens and Sparta and all the rest of the Greeks had been a thorn in King Xerxes' side. Xerxes and his father and his grandfather had been seriously annoyed by the Greeks who were constantly fomenting revolts in little islands among the Turkish coast and in the Aegean Sea. Mm -hmm. They tried multiple times to put down the Greeks. They lost at the Battle of Marathon, which is where we get the the name of the race from. They lost in a second effort to invade the coast. Uh, basically, Poseidon, the god of the sea, made a big storm, dash all the Persian ships when they were trying to invade. So that didn't work. And so now it comes down to Xerxes' time to try to take out the Greeks. Now, one of his top lieutenants was this Artemisia. We don't know that much about her as far as what she looks like. About 90% of what we know of Artemisia comes from Herodotus, the father of history, the guy who, you know, everybody says you need to cite, but not everybody says you need to take as gospel truth. Mm -hmm. He had a lot of source material to cover. He did have a lot of source material. He had access to a lot of archives back in the ancient times. He had access even to Persian archives. He was writing about 50 years after the events we're going to talk about. That's kind of our primary source on Artemisia. Hippocrates' son, you know, the guy who we get the Hippocratic Oath from, mm -hmm. he said a few things about Artemisia. Polyanus, another writer, a couple hundred years later, talks about her. But basically, we know fairly little. She was the daughter of a Turkish king and daughter of a mother from the island of Crete. So she was probably a mix of Greek and Turkish features. But there are no statues or coins or frescoes or anything that we really have to go on. We think she probably did not look like Eva Green, though, the actress. Probably not, if I had to bet. But her Greek heritage would become an important part of her strategy in her life, as we'll get into in a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it gave her insight into how the Greeks acted, how the Greeks thought. And the Greeks, while they are creating rebellions around the Turkish coast and bothering the Persian emperor, they're also creating trouble for themselves because typically they just didn't get along. The Macedonians and the Spartans and the other groups on the Peloponnese didn't get along with the folks from Athens, the folks from Attica, that region. So the Greeks had their own problems that they were dealing with. Well, Xerxes in 480 BC finally decides he's going to put the Greeks down once and for all. Unlike the half-baked invasions of his ancestors, he didn't just start off with an army and hope that it worked out. He planned how he was going to get that army all the way into Greece. He assembled about 180,000 troops. It's unclear exactly. Herodotus said it was 1.8 million, but we think he's significantly off by the way he calculated that number. But even with 180,000 troops, if they only eat a half pound a day per soldier, that's still 90,000 pounds of food you've got to supply them with per day. And they get thirsty marching along the Greek countryside. So you've got to have supply lines that can keep the food and the fresh water and the reinforcement and the messages back from the home kingdom going. And that's where the Navy became important. And the Persians, their strong suit was not their Navy, correct? No, they were a big land power, but they were not a people or a military that was really comfortable fighting at sea. And that's partly where Artemisia came in. 
She lived along the Turkish coast in an area called Caria, which is southwestern Turkey. She had used her ships to subdue some islands for the Persian king. Artemisia had proved herself to be a loyal ally of the Persian emperor. So when it came time to invade Greece, Emperor Xerxes picked Artemisia, along with a bunch of other kings, to join him on the Greek expedition. She answered the call to his banner. She did answer. She answered his call. She had proved her loyalty to the Persian emperor by using her fleet along the Turkish coast to put down rebellions by the Greeks who lived there. And that earned her the ire of Hippocrates' son and a few other Greek national, you know, big pro-Greek types. Well, Xerxes commenced his operation in 480, and he began marching across the Hellespont, which is that little body of water that separates Europe from Asia. And as a sign of the kind of planning he had, he didn't want to move his men on boats. He wanted them to march there. So he took about 600 boats and lashed them all together, and he built a double bridge so his men could walk across into Europe. They marched ahead, and of course, he had his fleet nearby to keep the soldiers supplied with food. Artemisia commanded one of those squadrons. They moved along the coast and fought a big naval engagement at an island called Euboea. Both the Greeks and the Persians got into a pitched naval battle. It was their first big battle there, and it proved to be kind of inconclusive. Both sides lost a lot of ships. Hmm. Now, the ships they were using were these warships. Basically, they were big galleys that had oars. So you could, you know, just like you see in the movies, you got the slaves chained to the oars. Row, 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 exactly. So that was what the battleship of the Greco-Persian Wars was. They had a big ram on the front of them. And the way you used it was basically you just aim your boat at the other guy's boat and try to hit him on the side. You T-bone him and you sink him that way. You bash a big hole in his hull. And, and then you, exchange insurance cards. Yeah, exchange insurance, exactly. But but back then you didn't even have to do that. You just backpedal your, your ship and you let the other guy sink and you laugh at him. So these ships had three banks of oars called triremes. And so the triremes went at each other. Both sides lost a bunch of them. The Persians continued to move down the Greek coast. They met a small group of Spartans at a place called Thermopylae, the subject of the first 300 movie. And they were checked for a while, but they eventually managed to overwhelm the Spartans there, move into Athens. They burned it to the ground. They went up to the Acropolis. There's a big wooden temple there at the time, and they pretty much burned everything. Themistocles Meanwhile, is the guy who's sitting back saying, we shouldn't be trying to fight these guys on land. We need to use our navy. Now, the Athenian navy was a little different from the navy of Persia because the Athenians were all free men. They were all volunteers, and they trained. You had to be kind of skilled to be a galley commander or even a galley rower because the oars have got to coordinate. So you got to know that when you hear the command to back up, you push the oar the other way. Athens had a number of those ships. They had to combine their fleet with the fleets of Sparta and some other small city-states to equal the numbers that were approaching them by the Persians. So you're saying they had to unify in order to be able to take on the Persians. 
Yes, it's the classic case of everybody's going to fight among themselves until there's a common threat, and then they'll join together at least for a short period of time. But it was not too successful on land. I mean, Xerxes had a much bigger army, and that's why he was able to take out Athens. So the Greeks would have to take it to the sea if they wanted any chance at victory. Exactly. But they had differences of opinion on how to do that. And the Spartans were worried about one thing, the Athenians were worried about another thing, and neither of them could really agree on what should be done next. And after the break, we'll talk about what they did. So the ancient Greeks faced a threat from Xerxes, Artemisia, and a massive army. What could the Greeks do, and what would Artemisia do in battle? We'll find out after the break. So, Dad, the Greeks have now united with a common cause, a common enemy. What do they do next? They began to back away from Athens. They were making a retreat as the Persian army moved forward. And the Persian army came to this little neck of land called the Isthmus of Corinth. It was a bottleneck, a lot like the bottleneck at Thermopylae, and they got stuck there. But they had a big fleet, and they could go around the Greeks if they could just defeat the Greek fleet. The Greek fleet had holed up at a nearby island called Salamis, And so the Persians decided to attack them by sea. How did they come to decide to attack by sea? Well, they had a choice, of course. They could continue to ram their armies to the west, or they could attack at sea. They had bottled up the Greek fleet, so the Greeks really weren't going very far. Persia had to decide, do we attack or not? Well, King Xerxes got all of his advisors together and said, what should we do? And all the manly men among them said, we need to launch a frontal attack. The aggressive approach. Yeah, the aggressive. Let's just finish them off now so we can all go home. But the one voice of dissent came from the one woman in the room. At this point, Artemisia raised her hand and basically said, here's the quote from Herodotus, spare your ships and do not fight at sea, for the Greeks are infinitely superior to us in naval matters. The difference between men and women is hardly greater. In any case, what pressing need have you to go risk further actions at sea? Have you not taken Athens, the main objective of your war? Let me tell you how I think things will go with the enemy. Now she's she's channeling her Greek heritage, channeling her Greek mindset. She said, let me tell you how I think things will go with the enemy. If only you are not in too great a hurry to fight at sea, if you will keep the fleet on the coast where it is now, then whether you stay here or advance into the Peloponnese, you will easily accomplish your purpose. If, on the other hand, you rush into a naval action, my fear is that deficit of your fleet may involve the army too. She was telling him, just sit tight, let the Greeks break up, because the Athenians wanted to go back to Athens, which had been burned. The Spartans were more worried about protecting the lands to the west. So what she's saying is just don't be in too big a hurry. They're going to fall apart on their own. And I think that's really great advice, but it's difficult when every man in the room is disagreeing. They were about to have a field day with her as well. Exactly. Uh, She uh, was going to lose her reputation with the great king. She might even lose her head if he wasn't happy with her advice. But he went ahead with a frontal attack anyway. 
He launched his ships toward the Greek ships, but unfortunately for the Persians, the channel they had to go through to get to the Greeks began to narrow and narrow and narrow. And so their advantage in ships became a big disadvantage because their ships began to get all tangled up and crush each other and run into each other, and they couldn't do anything. And at that point, the Greeks under Themistocles launched their attack. They began to smash the first row of the Persian ships. Those ships tried to back up. They got tangled in the oars of the ships behind them. And then pretty soon it was a free-for-all. Artemisia had her own squadron, and she was off in one area. They were fighting back and forth with the Greeks. At one point, another Greek ship saw her. Now, there had been a 10,000 drachma bounty put out for her capture by the Greeks, and that was a lot of money in those times. But the ship wasn't sure that that was a Greek ship or a Persian ship, but they thought it was a Persian ship, and they thought it might have been Artemisia's. So the Greek captain began moving his warship directly at Artemisia's ship, and he had her on the angle. He was going to be able to sink her. Yeah, and with so many bannermen and different people from all over, it's it's very hard to tell. At first I was like, isn't it black and white? You know, one person has one colors hung up, one person has another. Yeah, it's, it's hard to tell. Yeah, it's not like the Lannisters or somebody like that. They didn't have their own flags. They had different types of flags. And Artemisia had been known to carry two different flags, which was an old ruse that a lot of navies have done for centuries. Well, this Greek is coming at her ship and she knows that she's toast. So she can't run. So what does she do? She does something really smart. She, yeah, she turns on one of her own allied ships, rams right into it. It's the king of Calidnia and sinks him with all hands on board. Well, the Greek captain sees at a distance this ship sinking an obviously Persian ship, the Calindian ship, and says, OK, I made a mistake. He pulls back and Artemisia is able to hightail it out of danger. But isn't treason and betrayal a capital offense to the Persians? Not if you get away with it, because <laughs> here's what happened. The Kalindian ship, the ally that Artemisia ruthlessly ran down with her own ship, sank with all hands. There was nobody to rat her out. Now, the king had an observation post on the attic shore, and he looked down at it, and he can't really see it too well. Nobody can see what's going yeah. on too well. But his advisors, for whatever reason, said, look, great king, Artemisia ship just took out an enemy ship. Isn't she brave? And at that point, Herodotus says, the great king said, my men have become women and my women have become men. And she became the hero of the battle. I can't believe she got away with that. I mean, he needed a win. I'm sure the king Xerxes was looking for a win, but that is hilarious. Yeah, she totally got away with murder. So the battle turns into a disaster for the Persians. Their fleet sinks. They've still got some more ships left, but they're not really sure what to do because they can't keep the food going to those soldiers. This was an immense battle that changed history. Imagine what the world would look like if the ancient Greeks had been conquered by Persia. All those things about philosophy and medicine and democracy we learn about would look quite different. After the break, we'll talk about how Artemisia advised the great king to pick up the pieces of his disasters. Xerxes gets all his generals back in, not the Kalindian king, but the ones who survived, and said, uh, all right, guys, what should we do? 
Well, at this time, according to Herodotus, Artemisius said, I think that you should quit this country and leave your army behind with the force that it needs. If your general prospers and he wins, then it'll be your work because it's your slave who performed this for you. And if they defeat him, no big deal because he was just one of your lowly generals. But that's my advice. I would have said, I told you so. Let's go home. She knew better than to say, I told you so. But this time the great king took her advice and he moved back to Persia. He left a small army there that ended up getting beaten a year later. He came back with his house, his kingdom intact, and he was grateful for the good advice that the one woman in his group gave him. Wow. The coda to this is that she went back to her homeland of Caria, where she lived out her days. The king was always grateful to her, and kings, of course, have to sometimes give out swag to their loyal retainers. So if you go to the British Museum, you can see this calcite jar, and it's inscribed in four languages, Xerxes' great king. And it was found in the mausoleum of Halicarnassus, which was Artemisia's turf. And it was undoubtedly a present from Xerxes, king of Persia, to Artemisia for the good advice she gave him. I love that essentially her boss gave her a gift with his name all over it. Like you think about like when you give someone a gift, like if I gave you something like covered in my name, I wouldn't appreciate it as much. Well, you know, my law firm gives out branded stuff always, (laughs) uh, all the time. So, you know, it's a branded thing. Yeah. And I actually have my cup from the British Museum where we went to see the jar. So my lucky mug. There you go. Dad, how does Artemisia rank to you among our war queens? Artemisia is a mixed bag, because on one hand, she was on the losing side. But of course, we can learn a lot from the guys who lose anyway. I mean, Napoleon lost at Leipzig and Borodino and of course, Waterloo. But we can learn a good bit from him, and he's a respectable guy in military circles. I think I would give Artemisia about a seven and a half or eight. She was able to win, but she took a lot of chances and she had an awful lot of luck and things could have easily gone south for her at a number of different points in the Battle of Salamis. But I do give her props for having a very wise view of what the Greeks were doing and being able to put herself in the enemy's shoes and think how they would react. So I give her pretty good points. Wouldn't call her the best, but definitely wouldn't call her the worst. What's her number, one to 10? I think I'd give her about an eight, 8.5. Okay. I also would give her probably a few points on just being able to speak up as the only woman in the room. You know, there's plenty of situations where you're in a situation where you're the only person in the room with your background. And I think it's always important to have these great examples of people who were unafraid. And even though it didn't go her way, she ended up being right. So she did. She spoke up in the board meeting. She did. Like an action hero from a movie, Artemisia of Caria proved she could fight with the best men. She was ruthless, and she was unafraid to speak truth to the Persian emperor. No wonder Herodotus liked her so much. That's our show for today. Listen to every episode of War Queens for more stories of women who brought their nations through the fires of war. questions for us about war queens if you're curious about something you heard on the show we'd love to hear from you please email us at warqueens at diversionaudio.com 
Again, that's warqueens at diversionaudio.com. We'll try to answer your questions on a future episode. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at warqueenspodcast. War Queens is a production of Diversion Audio. Your hosts are John Jordan, Emily Jordan, and I'm Natalie Emmanuel. The show is written by John and Emily Jordan based on their book, The War Queens. Our supervising producer and sound designer is Mark Francis. With production assistance from Antonio Enriquez. Editorial direction from Jacob Bronstein and Scott Waxman. Our head of marketing is Erica Farmer. Our theme music is by Tyler Cash. Executive producers, Jacob Bronstein, Mark Francis and Scott Waxman for Diversion Audio. 